0: Only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com.
1: You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now here's your host, Mick Garris. From Nice Guy Productions world headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris and this is Postmortem. Let's talk a little bit about the plight of independent film. I'm not just talking about independent filmmakers, but the production companies, the distributors, and the exhibitors as well. Smaller budget films have been under siege since long before the pandemic, but sheltering in place has deepened the crisis. The value of small dollar films has dropped precipitously as the view at home options have increased. Theatrical films have taken a major beating in general, but those with an independent voice without a major studio marketing budget to back them up have almost disappeared from theater screens. More films are being made than ever before, and there are more platforms than ever to carry them, but indie movies have become chattel. It takes passion and drive and commitment to make feature films of any sort. But when you're making a film that isn't going to find the deep pockets of a Universal or Warner Brothers to spread the word, your chances of theatrical distribution have shrunk down to primarily festival runs. Fresh voices in film are always welcome, but hard to come by in the world of big studios, where there are a lot of stumbling blocks to providing what Frank Capra described as one man, one film. And we'll amend that to say one person, one film. But the point is, few studio films maintain the creative imprimatur of a single filmmaker. Studios look for franchises, easily packaged, marketable commodities that can be repeated endlessly. And in the process, they have gobbled up parts of the indie world as well. Warner Brothers bought New Line Cinema, and Universal, Amazon, and Netflix distribute the Blumhouse genre films. But beyond that, art house chains like Lemley Theaters in Southern California have a long history of promoting independent cinema owned by the sons of Carl Lemley, who ran Universal Pictures back in the golden 1930s. It's a family-run operation that was already under duress before COVID hit. They've opened up again, as have other oases of independent cinema like Landmark and Alamo Drafthouse. But even they have had to link up with streaming services in an attempt to survive. They are hanging on by their fingernails. If you believe in original voices in your entertainment, the only way to keep the heart of live cinema beating is to go to the movies. Now that it seems safe, share that movie-going experience with friends and family. There's nothing like a great horror film in an audience primed for it. Sure, Netflix and Amazon and Criterion Channel and the dozens of other streamers are great and allow us to view movies we might otherwise not be able to access but keep the theaters open and don't pirate films. We are all in this together, and so many of us have gotten used to the idea of watching movies at home that it's tough to motivate us to get back into those reclining leather seats at the movies. Any movie is better experienced on the big screen, so join me, and I'll see you at the movies. Speaking of independent movies, our guests today have a great one that has managed to find theatrical distribution. We'll talk with the writer of Werewolves Within, Mishna Wolf, and its director, Josh Rubin, on riding the waves of the Wild West of movie making after this. You know, there's something special about having a physical copy of a horror movie to add to your collection. I recently discovered Horror Pack, a subscription box that sends you four horror movies on Blu-ray or DVD each and every month. The Blu-ray Pack always has a Horror Pack limited edition plus three other titles. The packs have a mixture of independent and mainstream horror starting at $19.99 with free US shipping for DVD or $24.99 for Blu-ray. Use code POSTMORTEM to get $3 off your first pack at HorrorPack.com. That's HorrorPack.com, H-O-R-R-O-R-P-A-C-K.com. If you love Star Wars and behind-the-scenes stories, you may also love Talking Bay 94, a weekly podcast where Brandon Wainerde interviews the cast and crew of a galaxy far, far away. Talking Bay has over 100 episodes, one-on-one interviews with VFX legends, monster makers, and creature performers, including guests like Dennis Muren, Phil Tippett, and winners of more than 30 Academy Awards. And, well, I also recently made an appearance on the show talking to Brandon about my early experiences working at the Star Wars Corporation. Find Talking Bay 94 wherever you listen to podcasts, or at TalkingBay94.com. So, Mishnah and Josh, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Uh, the movie is so much fun and your backgrounds are quite unusual for writers and directors of genre film. You both come out of comedy backgrounds, right? Mishnah, you were doing, well, you had a best-selling book that you turned into a one woman show about your experience being raised as a white girl in a black community, basically. A family. A family, yeah. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about how that background um, turned you into who you are today.
2: Well, I mean, I think like a, a lot of young budding writers, you know, I took every gig Um, and, uh, I, I did articles, I did video games, I did radio station interstitials. I did, uh, I, I just did everything I could get my hands on. And I just was always someone who was kind of, um, On stage, telling stories, doing storytelling series is, and I think, and I don't know if Josh agrees with me on this, but I'm sure he'll agree that that just sort of the experience of taking risks in front of live audiences really attunes you to when you're losing people Mm -hmm. and, and what failure feels like in a way that you just don't want to repeat.
1: Well, what a lot of screenwriters don't seem to understand, uh, and hopeful screenwriters, primary amongst them, is that you're still entertaining an audience. You're trying to get the reader to turn the page. And often that's by the language being as entertaining in uh, as what the blueprint is.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I would agree with that. I, I think, you know, I was writing for Josh, um, not the audience yet. Um, when, when you're writing a, a screenplay and you're working with executives, you know, in the way that I was, it was to attract my Josh. Um, so, <laughs> so once we got him, uh, my work was really done here. Um, and, uh, and And that was like really the clear uh besides you know entertaining myself which is always <laughs> which is always in the back of my mind it's like what would i what would i want to be watching um it, it was really like that script was um put in place to send out into the ether and, and bring back a director
1: now josh you had done a feature before this scare me which you um which was also in a very set in a very confined space um and so that's two movies in a row that you really don't go outside of the environment much. Um, but your background is also in comedy. You worked at Funny or Die, uh, you had done college humor for years, and you'd done stand up, and you're an actor, and you performed in movies and uh, stand up and all that. So, how did that feed your approach as a filmmaker?
3: That's an awesome question. Um, by the way, I'm in the Hudson Valley where we shot and you have brought the vibe. It is teeming rain and thunderstorm and, and hearing you, this is your my favorite show. So hearing you uh, oh, say our names you. out loud and I listen to everything. <laughs> so I'm, I'm gonna try to be articulate. Um, a lot of it for me from the many years of coming up, I really thought I wanted to be an actor. I took Strasbourg classes. I actually went wow. to um, a, a school founded by uh, George Morrison, Paul Sills and Mike Nichols in the city called the New Actors Workshop. So Mike was actually one of my instructors when I was very there. renowned, very a teenager. Oh yeah you know he'd bum cigarettes off of the you know the <laughs> students and you know, say he wanted to hide it from Diane. Um, and, uh, well, he's
1: right? another, he's another director who started out as a stand up comic with Elaine absolutely. May. And Nichols and Mary. Yeah,
3: absolutely. And I think that there was something, maybe it's just because, you know, uh, my, my mom thinks that I'm, you know, um, uh, all, all all that and a, a loaf of wonder bread or whatever, uh, but, <laughs> but uh, there is something holistic that I think, um, I wanna to bring to uh, the work that I do that I think is, in- is inherent in the comedy community. And that I also, in my approach to directing as my whole thing is wanting to make people feel as comfortable as I've always wanted to make my, uh, as I've always wanted a director to make me feel. Um, and that that comes before all of the technical sort of Nichols-esque stuff of what would, ha- what would really happen if how would you really be terrified if, and also, you know, people, when they ask me, how do you balance horror and comedy so much? My answer is always a very Nichols-esque outlook, which is philosophy I learned in his school, which is don't get caught trying to be funny, actually play the terror for real. What would really happen if, what would these people really do if, and obviously, you know, within the confines of that, you can be as colorful as you want. So I think I, I learned quite a bit from the comedy community playing with genre and testing the limits of genre and I think you know not to compare myself at all to the Krasinskis and peels of the world but yeah. that is that is the world they came up in and to come in from sketch like Mishna as well and the comedy world you understand how to test the limits of genre and play with genre and uh, within the confines of that you know you can you can terrify
1: well you seem to be two voices who are quite simpatico with one another How did you come together was it through Ubisoft?
3: It was, yeah. Um, I mean, Misha had done the, the Women's Fellowship uh, program with Margaret Boykin um, at Ubisoft. It was a wonderful program. And so the script was quite very developed by the time it made its way to me. And I was a very much a first time director who'd only done a $380,000 movie in me, um, <laughs> essentially a black box uh, theater film. Um, but, uh, you know, by the time it came to me, my shoulders, of course, went up at the prospect of a video game adaptation because of the <laughs> reputation of such. And then Mishnah's yes. script felt like my immediate comp was arachnophobia. My immediate uh-huh. comp was, which I think is a, a touchstone, uh, you know, horror comedy. Um, it felt like Fargo. It felt like hot fuzz. Um, and, well, you're uh, talking
1: about really interesting characters. And uh, Mishnah, when you were writing it, did you have specific models in mind that influenced your approach to that
2: yeah sure i mean when you look at the video game that this is based on people are dressed like their job i mean these are archetypes so um and and looking at movies like clue and uh where people's jobs are in their name it's professor colonel um (laughs) and then also you know looking at like um alien or the thing which are also i think great movies that inspired me you know their jobs are central to who their character is um so definitely thinking in the world of archetypes and I feel like my stand-up training really um taught me to um write for voices that are very sort of strong personalities and you know I was not a great performer but I was (laughs) I was a very decent joke writer and I wrote for a lot of people and I feel like Getting into that other voice that's not my voice because I don't know what my voice is is kind of my, <laughs> is kind of something that makes me happy and it, it makes me tick and and I love these characters. I spent a lot of time with them. They were my friends. Well, uh, there's
1: there's a lot to be said for multiple personality disorder when you're a writer.
2: It <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't hurt. Doesn't it, it, hurt.
1: But um, you know there are two strikes against this movie in that, as we said, the fact that it's a video game adaptation and it's a horror comedy but you overcome those so beautifully because there's also obviously a love of genre and association with genre that seems to go way back i mean to me this is the shining meets the thing meets alien meets uh, ten little indians um and so what were the things josh that you Watched when you were growing up. What were the things that got you excited? the The movies that you wanted to own, not just watch.
3: Oh, I mean, you know, uh, to to give you a bit of context, uh, I have a a brother and a sister who are nine years my senior. They were and they were my my heroes, Um, and I was the shy, the shy, chubby, friendless kid who you always talk about when you talk about the underdog, right? And in your introductions, and in. Um, you know, a lot in the show, we talk about being the underdog. I was the quintessential, I think, underdog kid, um, a sweet, shy, um, you know, one who wanted nothing more than to be one of the dream warriors to take out Freddie. Uh, but my (laughs) sister was, my sister was the the gatekeeper for me, um, uh, for horror. So not only did we have, you know, um, the late eighties cable channels, everything Freddie and Jason, but Freddie, as I, I think I was introduced to uh, to those films, the later films first, maybe Rennie Harlan and beyond, right. um, they felt like cartoons. Freddie felt like a cartoon character for me. I actually got in trouble in kindergarten for doing an impression of Freddie. And they were like, we should talk to your parents. Um, <laughs> uh, I think I just did a tongue flick and as deep a voice as I could do at five or six. Um, but uh, the films that I watched, though, were... <laughs> I think one of the most impactful beyond Jaws was Stephen King's Cat's Eye. That was a really, really impactful anthology, as Schlock Quitters Inc. in particular.
1: Quitters Inc. in particular. Powerful.
3: Yeah. Uh, So powerful. And we had a cat, and I loved Robert Hayes in Airplane. And then to see him as a comedic actor through my eyes, but playing drama, I think there was something that affected me subconsciously seeing a cross pollination of. Actor known for humor, and then to see them in a kind of horror setting. And Drew Barrymore, who I was, you know, into in, in ET, but to see her, um, to see her in, in this, this terrifying circumstance when a thing emerges from her wall and the like. So, you know, Cat's Eye and Tales from the Dark Side, both the series and the show, Freddie's Nightmares. And
1: <laughs> I um, did one of
3: those. <laughs> I, I can't, yeah, and Monsters, like you know, all of these kind of, uh, these wonderful shows that you were in, in, integral in. Um, including, you know, Critters two and psycho four and sleepwalkers was a comfort blanket watch for me. I can't uh, believe you work with Mary Krieg. She's a genius. But anyway, um, yeah, uh, Alice so King many, is Mary Brady. Oh, Alice. Yes. Yeah. Right. There you go. Alice, that's Mary. Right. Alice. <laughs> Krieg. Yeah.
1: Uh, well, thank you. Um, Sundance. Well, first of all, festivals in general are an incredibly important part of the independent film world as we talked about in the introduction. Sundance has personally been important to both of you because Josh, your first movie had its debut at Sundance and killed and opened doors for you that obviously led to this movie. And Mishnah, you were part of a a screenwriting program at Sundance, which also proved to be invaluable to you uh, in your line. So Mishnah, tell me about that experience and how you felt that it opened you up as a creator.
2: I mean, I think Sundance taught me how to drop the shtick. A little bit. And, uh, you know, uh, they saw me for more than maybe I saw myself for at that moment. You know, it's a very prestigious fellowship and um, there's a lot of applicants. So once you're there, um, they sort Mm -hmm. of test you to dream bigger, go deeper, um, not pull your punches emotionally. And I think as a comedian, like I needed that nudge to sort of live into emotional moments a little bit more and to not shy away from feelings. And, you know, I think it really strengthened me just as a storyteller um, to be around great storytellers, to have great mentors and to sort of, I hate to say it, but just like sort of be anointed as a storyteller a little bit and, you know, start trusting my voice. Um, in the in the way they sort of gave me license to do that, and uh, you know, I actually did two Sundance fellowships. So. Wow! Yeah, I I did the episodic and the screenwriter lab there, and uh, you know, they taught me how to write. What am I gonna say? I mean, they really did.
1: Did Did you find that comedy was sort of a protective blanket that kept you from having to be in touch with something more deeply emotional?
2: Yeah, I, I grew up in a, a neighborhood that I would say it was relatively high risk, so. Um, Comedy actually keep me from getting my ass kicked Uh, (laughs) pretty much. uh,
1: And you're six feet tall. So uh, you're an imposing figure.
2: You know, not as imposing as you'd think. (laughs) (laughs) Never as imposing as I'd like to be. Um, So yeah, comedy, comedy was uh, my samurai sword.
1: Did you find the same thing, Josh, uh, with humor, keeping you from having to go deep into painful places uh, that it protected you?
3: It protected me from uh, truly from the bullies. I, I I watched a lot of John Leguizamo and Robin Williams, a lot of Robin one man shows, and I yeah. I mimicked both of their routines a lot more Robin than Leguizamo, and that often prevented me from um, getting my ass kicked. I, I I remember a lot of lunchroom disarmments um, from you know doing a wow you know an elephant an, ele- an elephant dick sound. <laughs> oh, down some, you know, a lot of like, trying to just to kind of back back people off of my ass. Um, but not to not to protect um, anything kind of deeply emotional prevent that I was a raw nerve as a kid. I mean, hey, I'm a mm. cancer. Um, so, uh, and I think that's, you know, <laughs> that's my, probably my biggest, uh, my, my biggest kryptonite and greatest strength, probably working with actors as well.
1: Well, let's go back to Scare Me, because you had done, you directed lots of things for James Corden and for Funny or Die and uh, and College Humor. But it's one thing to tell a short and to be funny in spurts. Uh, it's another thing to have a feature length story that has to maintain both tension and personality and humor without getting in each other's way. And there are very few that, you know, the balancing act is the term that people use all the time between comedy and horror, but it's more than that. It's telling a story that has those elements. So it starts at the scripting process. So tell me about how that process happened and then how it ended up at Sundance.
3: I had read Mark and Jay Duplass's book, Like Brothers, which kicked my ass into gear. They said, "Just stop waiting and stop taking meetings and just make the thing." And the funny, the ironic thing is, I've been making the thing for many years. It's how I got my job at College Humor was finding my tribe, making shit, failing, falling down, and fucking up, and then putting more stuff out and getting (laughs) reactions. And then College Humor took a liking in what we did, and that turned into basically a seven-year gig um but uh you know scare me was me again realizing it you know my mid-30s no one's going to spoon feed me the opportunity to um write a part to my strengths a and also uh write a part where i could really listen where i could do real acting opposite a real actress um and other actors who might not have the opportunity to play certain parts um be they ugly or buoyant or otherwise Um, And that was the wonderful thing about, you know, approaching Aya Cash, who I'd known for many years, who comes from live theater and Chris Redd and Becky Drysdale and asking them, hey, do you want to come do this thing? Um, uh, It was a bucket list item to make something with my friends, let alone, um, you know, put it out into the world. And then the fact that Sundance happened and the fact that it led to this, it just it's it's uh, I'd be happy to go back to working at Best Buy (laughs) <laughs> um, uh, I'm so, I'm so thrilled, but it wouldn't have happened if I didn't take a big risk. I did something pretty reckless that, you know, uh, I guess in finding my tribe and, you know, putting videos out forever ago and getting the job at college humor that amassed a modest 401k that I took $26,000 out of and yet, yet to, uh, be reprimanded by the IRS. But those were the starter funds for the film. Um, and, and, uh, if I didn't do that, the producers at Vanishing Angle um, wouldn't have been able to come to a test screening and see it and then wouldn't have been able to, you know, suggest me or ask if I'd be willing to throw my hat in the ring and pitch on M- Mishna's script, Mishnah's movie.
1: Yeah, well, it, it's interesting. I think it's it takes much. a lot of bravery to to go, yeah, your movie combined. No, hours, <laughs> <Yeah>. hours, hours. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Really but accurate. it takes a lot of bravery to to give up a comfort, you know, I had a job as a publicist when I decided I'm done, I'm writing, I'm gonna make this happen or die trying. And it worked out. And the first guy to hire me to write screenplays was Steven Spielberg, which <laughs> kind of changed my life after being on food stamps for six months. Um,
2: Spielberg? Spiel, yeah Spiel? what's his name he, he so made, with S? With
3: he's made
1: a bunch of movies he's okay. made a bunch of them yeah
3: it rings, a bell. rings a bell yeah
1: it's on imdb look him
3: right. up i'll look him up yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> fun encounters of the close kind yeah it's yeah, really, that's... great
1: <laughs> <laughs> but so mishna what was your drop dead moment where it was uh in your case josh it was funny or die literally and uh in mishna's case what would that have been
2: um i had been sort of banging my head and i had a lot of odd jobs as a writer I, I i would go to i was actually one of those people who goes into nightclubs and tracks celebrities and writes about them for a little while that was actually like one of my gigs was like you know life and style just sort of like lindsay's hanging out with paris again uh-oh
1: paparazzi without the camera
2: yeah uh that was like I was, there was like i was definitely too old for that ch- but, um, <laughs> but, um, and I was writing for a video game. I was writing for ABC radio, all those, like, uh, those Howard interstitials on Jack FM radio stations. I, I was responsible <laughs> for probably 3000 of those. Um, and, um, I got this book deal and what happened honestly, is I sent, uh, I sent a proposal out to 14 editors and got 13 offers, you know, which is like, wow. that never like happens. But um, you know, and um, just really challenged myself to write something that um, expanded my skill set, like went beyond what, what I felt like my skill set was. And I was really just trying to write a really funny father-daughter story. But, you know, they sold it at the Nobel Peace Museum. And and right. when, when someone called and said, your book's in Oslo, I was <laughs> like, I was like, what? And um, while I think the book's a little dated now, it it was something that made me sort of feel like, I can write three act structure. I can write a beginning, middle and end, and I know how to take people on a satisfying journey. Um, and that's really, for me, it's, it's about giving somebody who picks up something. I write the emotional experience of the beginning, a middle and end, and, and that, that ride is satisfying. It has the things that people want when they, when they give you your eye or your ear for a moment and let you tell them a story. I mean, you really owe something to somebody when they let you tell them a story. And I think my sort of life's work has been, you know, um, earning that privilege to have your ear or have your eye. You know, I have a lot of ADD and, uh, it's hard to keep my interest. And, and I feel like, um, People that do it well are are my heroes, and and I've always wanted to emulate that, just that, that respect for people's time when they give you their ear.
1: Available now from our podcast partners at Dread, the Queen of Spades. According to legend, an ominous entity known as the Queen of Spades can be summoned by performing an ancient ritual. Four teenagers summon the Queen of Spades, but they could never have imagined the horrors that await them. The Queen of Spades is available on demand everywhere and on Blu-ray July 3rd, 2021, ready to proclaim its independence. Coming soon to dread The Maid. Joy is the new maid of a royal house whose previous maid disappeared under mysterious circumstances and is now haunting and terrorizing the family. Joy works to uncover the reason behind the former maid's disappearance. The Maid will be available on demand everywhere July 20th, 2021, and on Blu-ray August 17th, 2021. Well, tell me the first time that you completed a feature-length screenplay, because I know so many people who say, well, I'm a writer, but I've never finished a script yet. That that sense of actually doing it all the way through the first time, and it becomes actually possible, and you realize that you can do that. Did you have a sense of valedictory doing that?
2: I did that really early on. I had scripts that uh, were in drawers, and uh, you know, I wrote a really terrible I wrote terrible scripts and that's how I learned how to write movies that I mean that's it I, I wrote scripts that I cringe when I read them um you know and I wrote 100 drafts of this movie that came out of the Sundance Lab and, w- and walked away from it and said you know what the world does not need this it's it's <laughs> like it's not there it's not going to be there I'm not going to keep banging my head against this wall I don't need to make this my tour de force I'm going to move on and write a new story and you know, I feel like that, that was part of my process too, you know, like there's no wasted writing. You learn something from everything. And
1: Right. There's so many writers have so many scripts that have never been sold spec scripts that sit on a shelf, but the accomplishment of doing that, Josh, what about you? Did you have a revelation the first time you realized you could actually go from beginning to end on the long form?
3: I think so. I can't remember what it was, but I definitely remember a conversation with an old agent who, who was like, "You should try writing." And I was like, "Oh, I can't do what X person, who I was despairing and comparing uh, to myself, did." Um, it was it was quite daunting, and I think my time at you know at an internet comedy site um, really <laughs> helped me kind of get over those small hurdles, five pages at a time. You know, two to five minute sketches meant two to five minute pages. So I remember feeling quite accomplished, um, you know, completing those and then writing. I think one of the first screenplays I wrote was with a friend. Um, and uh, we just kind of quickly found a rhythm and going, shit, like you're so good at dialogue. I actually love the physical kind of, you know, writing out the visuals, the sequencing, the formatting and, you know, the control, <laughs> control type. And he's just kind of rattling off this great rat tat kind of dialogue. And I tweak it and it was, we, the feeling of being done quite quickly was just, that was mind boggling going, oh, my God, I have a product. Of course, it was, it was garbage. It was hot garbage. But if you don't start there, you know, if you don't have your barf, um, your barf draft, as it were, then, <laughs> then you can't you can't make anything. Right. You have nowhere to go. And that that. Yeah, it was it was a wonderful feeling.
1: Well, both comedy and horror um, require an audience's affirmation. You guys are both performers and. When you get a laugh, it's an affirmation and it's an approbation. And it's something that lets you know that what you have done has reached an audience in a way, whether it's a a laugh or a scream or watching an audience grip the the edges of their seats uh, and white knuckle it through. And so this mashup of comedy and horror is a double dose of that affirmation. What was it like the first time, Mishnah, maybe both of you did it together, uh, the first time you sat through the movie with an audience?
2: Josh, did we do it together? No, I think you probably had some with your your, uh, edits that I didn't.
1: Yeah, but you wanted, I I mean, the first time it actually played in a theater.
3: Tribeca
2: was the first for me. I don't know about you, Josh.
3: Yeah, I think that that's fair to say, because, you know, Mick, we, we wrapped March 9th, 2020. And by Friday, um, we were in lockdown. So we j- made it just under the wire and then wow. the over, edit, ed, you know, Evercast and, you know, Skype and stuff with our our brilliant editor, Brett Bachman, who also is the, the brilliant mind behind um, Mandy, editor behind Mandy. Which um, I love. Yeah. And he's, he's, he's a total killer. Um and uh, so, I, yeah, I think Tribeca was kind of a beautiful thing. I was The last time I'd seen a film, certainly something that I'd made with an audience was Sundance, and I was there for all 40 hours because we were in prep. I had to schlep it back to Fleischman's New York from Utah um, to start <laughs> prep on Monday. Um, and, uh, and to go from that experience to wrapping a film, edit through a pandemic, and then come out on the other side to watch it with Mishnah um, at Tribeca on this football field size pier just a couple of weeks ago. That was, that was phenomenal. I mean, that, that was, I, I, I definitely <laughs> teared up. I choked up watching the Ubisoft logo and then hearing the Phantom strikes again and, you know, looking behind me and seeing friends and family and crew that was just, that was bonkers. So it, it was cathartic as hell. I still, I, the only two times I've seen it have been outside there was a drive-in event we did up here in the Hudson Valley. So I'm, I'm wow. looking forward to going to IFC Center or something and seeing it.
2: I saw it last night in a theater. Just walked in, oh, bought a ticket, saw the How movie. was it? It was the. It was like you know what it was. It was there was no baggage for me. I was just a movie watcher, and it was so fun.
1: Oh, I, so two fun. days ago I did the same thing at the Lemley Theaters here in North Hollywood. I saw it on the oh, big screen.
3: Um, You
1: know, my first feature, Critters 2, the timeless classic. Um,
2: Love Critters. (laughs) It it is. is. I love Uh, creature features. You're not going to like.
1: Well, on opening day, it was one of the greatest and most depressing days of my life because I went up to Universal City to see it in the theater there there were three people in the audience on opening night, Friday night. And it was like, okay, maybe I'll get to do another movie one day. But uh, three people sitting there and it too is a comedy horror film. And you're waiting for laughs. And the the good news is we had done a a sneak preview of it at a theater in Burbank that was sold out lying around the block and it could not have gone better but the world didn't want to pay to see a second Critter's <laughs> movie. So, so that experience, but that's the beauty of particularly genre festivals. Now you've been in mainstream festivals where the acceptance level is much tougher, especially for a genre film, but to, to go to genre festivals around the world, they're the, it's the only genre that has festivals around the world. And the fans are so appreciative. And, and I just want to say one of the great things about Werewolves Within, as well as Scare Me, is that they're surprising, they're really well acted, and they're very witty. And the dialogue just catches you up and it races. It's almost like Preston Sturgis dialogue in a horror movie. And, and you know, it's, it's, it provides so much pleasure. And once the two of you got together, on this how much work in in revisions was there with the two of you as a team because the script came to you josh if i'm not mistaken
3: it's true it was that that was that's a really it's a tricky question because um nisha's script when i first read it was uh was was even more um i don't think elaborate is the right word it it was truly an epic i mean it, it it had Car crash, uh, car crashes, and sort of a, a larger home invasion sort of showdown sequence. It was bigger and bloodier and and badder, and um, we ran into sort of a, a scenario with the budget where we realized we couldn't shoot for as many days as we wanted, where we had to consolidate, where we had to compress. There was the the only instance I was okay to kind of say goodbye to was taking the ending from the outdoors where we knew it would be you know below ten. um at its warmest and bringing it indoors you know that that was something that i was uh, personally okay with as much as i love the original image um of um you know of misha's script with with the showdown uh um so there was just some revisions to do kind of on a a producerial side to that degree And, and also for my own dense director brain i got to do you know, a director's pass. I got to sort of not reformat Misha's script, but when we did sort of change sequencing and move acts a, a bit further um, beyond the comedic punch-up stuff, as it all of it all, I would actually reformat to kind of get a head start on my shot list to sort of articulate. Um, actual sequencing to articulate almost, you know, angle ons or low, we see blank, you know, a a green under light under Parker's evil face or whatever it is to try and get ahead because prep is everything. And if I could cheat, quote unquote, by reformatting or kind of um, uh, articulating that to the entire crew, it's that much less conversation and communication you have to do. And ultimately, you know, all we do is answer questions and that's great. That's what the job is. But that was kind of the wonderful part.
1: Well, th- another element about this movie <clears throat> is that there's a lot of social commentary in it, from broad to subtle. And uh, so, Mishnah, you were dealing with a game company. Yeah. Um, I don't know what their requirements were. What were their requirements, and did you feel like you had to sneak th-
3: They had no requirements.
2: Their requirements were no requirements.
3: Well, that Ubisoft
2: was a dream. I've got they to They said,
3: you. be a good movie. They said, they literally said, like, what do I owe you? And they were like, make, make it good. Make, make it good. good make a
2: good movie. And, you know, I brought them, what I brought them was a little like edgy for them to begin with. I mean, I saw this video game and I was like, what if um, we made like broad social commentary on, uh, you know, sort of uh, identity stuff in America? And, uh, that seems to be catchy worldwide, and also, uh, you know, ideological conflict. You know, I got on this video game, and there were people arguing on the game, and I was like, "This is not Counter Strike, okay? This is like, <laughs> this is conflict, and it's yummy for me. I, I, I love this. I love all this conflict that's going on, and I see a lot of conflict in the world, and I'm going to bring that idea to, uh, you know, Who Done It." Well, there's, were- gender,
1: there's gender politics to it. There's racial politics to it. And there are planetary politics in this as well. And you're not preaching to anybody. And yet it's hard to take the other side <laughs> of the supposed good guys uh, in here. So tell me about that process.
2: Well, Finn's a connector. And now he was always supposed to be a connector. He's someone who hates conflict, really believes in bridging the divide between people, You know, I, it was very important that Finn never takes a side and that I never take a side when I'm writing. So um, even though I may have brought my own, you know, ideology to it, I was really, really trying to love all these characters and love all their flaws and, um, and just make it a romp where, you know, it's all coming out and, and we're dealing with not who's right or wrong, but just the division of it
3: all.
1: Well, Finn is the uniter. He's also a Black actor in what I do not believe was written as a Black role. Is that right? That came out of the casting process like Night of the Living Dead or something?
2: No, there were, I mean, initially there were other Black characters. There was a Black character who was written out before. There were characters that I played with being uh, Latino, Native American. There were always like different permutations of diversity in the script, but ultimately the choice to cast um to cast Sam Richardson I think uh I mean first and foremost comes from the fact that he is the perfect actor for this role I mean he is—he couldn't you know, be
1: more lovable
2: <laughs> he's just exactly he's just so good at being uncomfortable with the conflict that's going on in this town and his face is like he the the close-ups and I'm I'm sorry Josh I'm going off but I feel like the Please. close-ups of his face in this conflict that's going on in the town are so wonderful um he's just so uncomfortable with it he really really wanted things to go better and um and and it just shows in such a beautiful way and you know he's almost got there's almost like a groden-esque discomfort in his face it's so <laughs>
3: yeah. oh yeah wonderful you you articulated i mean the, the other day you said something about like you're taking like this polite human being and putting him in the most uncomfortable position he's ever been in. And he's actually an authority figure, but yeah. in looking at the casting of it all, this is a story about um, outsiders and yeah. about change and about the conflict between, um, you know, uh, being resolute. You're kind of in your ways and then in the inevitable change uh, in these small towns. Um, I-, I grew up, uh, in Woodstock, New York, which is a very, you know, fairly progressive town, but the towns surrounding weren't always as progressive as they are now. We shot in downtown Phoenicia, the sign Welcome Beaverfield is actually based on um, the uh, the Phoenicia sign. Um, and, you know, Newcomers in small towns like that did get the double take, and so yeah. just kind of leaning into the, you know, a a little bit more layer, a little bit more um, texture, allegory that that just um, brought home the theme a bit more, you know, and the fact that Misha and Ubisoft were just down for kind of anything was was uh, was killer. But I think ultimately it was like, why not, Sam? Like he, he is yeah. the Tom Hanks, Groden, you know, yeah. ultimate discomfort, uh, you know, um, uh, player in this, uh, in, as this protagonist. And everybody gets their Agatha Christie moment. That's a beautiful thing is you get yes. to see him play the spectrum of not only, you know, uh, kind, but also, you know, everybody has their eye rays, <laughs> you know?
1: Yeah. Well, tell me a little bit about the casting process because everybody in it is really good. Most of them are familiar to us, but it's more like that guy rather than their name.
3: Uh, Uh, Yeah, I'm curious if you've had a similar uh, situation as this. Uh, My my guess is to a degree because you've you've brought in friends. I mean, obviously you bring in folks like, you know, um, Clive and Joe Dante and Mr. Landis to, you know, cameo and the like, and Steven, you know. um, uh, So there was a piece of it where it was like, well, I knew I wanted friends. I know I want someone I've known for 10, 15 years in George Basil and, Mil- and Milana Weintrub who play Marcus and Cecily, um, respectively, because they- I've known them for forever. Not only are they comedic geniuses, but here are two people that are humanitarian and their kind of in their, in their ways, um, uh, disarming, charming, wonderful geniuses, but also great character actors. So I said, hey, if shit hits the fan at the end of the day in Fleischman's New York when it's 50 below, at least I can get a hug from my two friends I've known for a long time, or I can commiserate. But, um, you know, it started with Gail Keller. She's a brilliant cast and director. She'd worked on, obviously, what we do in the shadows, and so brought us uh, Harvey Guillen as a concept. Um, but, uh, But also, when folks like Harvey and George came aboard, Ubisoft was so open to the concept of my asking them, who do you want to play your Gwen? Who do you want to play your Ah, uh, your Devon, so that the actors felt they had skin in the game to make suggestions. And Harvey suggested Cheyenne Jackson, who's an absolute genius, and I wouldn't have necessarily thought of. Um, and George suggested Sarah Burns, who's a character actor, came up in comedy, can play just about anything, and has been in HBO's Barry, destroying it, you know. And then after that, yeah. everything beyond that was yeah. make make a list of the great actors you want to work with: Glenn Fleshler, Michael Chernus, and beyond. Yeah, and, and I once. Do-
1: you did-
2: I'm go sorry. ahead i'm
1: sorry mishna go ahead
3: and
2: i think one one of the things i was thinking when i was writing this is is if i put together a really great ensemble that are really fun enjoyable characters it doesn't need a tom cruise to open it you know it's that the ensemble becomes the big star
1: well that's the great thing about the genre too is that you're not selling movie stars you're selling a concept and you're selling a situation so yeah in the casting process once you've worked with somebody in a compatible way and you love their work and they're good people and they're good to have on the set. It raises spirits everywhere to be able to work with Charles Durning more than once, to be able to work with Matt Frewer more than once, to to be able to work with Annabeth Gish or Steven Weber or all these people who made Chin Amick, you know. There's mm. several people that, you know, you understand why people like Preston Sturgis and Frank Capra in the, in the Golden Age would repeatedly use these people because they were not only reliable, but they made your day pass better. Yeah, And and they give you more than what you expect. Although when I'm in a casting session and somebody brings something into it more than or other than what I had in my mind, I get thrilled. And that happened casting The Stand with Matt Frewer. He was the first actor we read for any role as Trash Can Man. And as written, you might expect somebody to just play the lunacy. And he came in with pathos and he brought in this, you know it's the first time he gets to meet with Randall Flagg and Flagg holds up the cigarette lighter to him with the flame and my life for you. He literally, Stephen King and I and Lynn Kressel, the casting director were in the room and we were tearing up because he was tearing up. And to be surprised like that, Uh, it it totally changes your perception of the character and widens that perception did you have any of those wow moments in your casting on on werewolves
3: I think everybody everybody brought it. I mean the fact that you know go back into the theme of don't get caught trying to be funny you know you have actors who come from improv like Harvey Guillen who will toss out some of the most incredible one-liners every (laughs) single time it's frustrating you can't Put anything on the cutting room floor, so there were surprises to that degree. But also that you could put Rebecca Henderson, as a comic genius, who plays Doctor Ellis, um, playing almost a caricature of you know the the um, the uh, 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 not not degrading of the kind of deteriorating um, uh, uh, scientist, to, you know, sequestered to the back room. Um, And Kathy Curtin, who can cry on cue. So she's tearing (laughs) and actually mourning her husband while Rebecca Henderson is almost giving her this robotic delivery of the line, Janine, I'm going to find out what killed your dead husband. And it's like, and she wheels away on a chair as Kathy really cries. There were these constant sort of, you know, again, the cross-pollination of these actors that worked so well. The fact they all got along, but they all brought it in their different kind of colors of the palette. They're surprised every day, you know? It's it's so
1: exciting when that happens. And Mishnah, the first time you saw the film cut together, um, were there surprises in it for you? I mean, as a writer who's also had screenplays directed by other people, I always every single time it's like, wait, what? (laughs) Um, Not necessarily in a bad way, but what was your experience the first time you saw it?
2: Oh, it was a great experience. I mean, these actors bring so much to the table, and just watching things you wrote—you know—sort of come be transmitted through someone else's uh, being, uh, because they take all their experiences and their emotions and their life and their sensibilities, and it's—it it gets filtered through them into into the movie. It's just—it's a beautiful thing. It really becomes alive. Um, in a way that you would have hoped it to be, but you you can never count on and and uh, mm-hmm. and and I was really just tickled by everything I saw um, from beginning to end. I was really impressed with the chemistry though between the characters. That was something that was surprising. It took me aback how how great they were with each other and and how normal how how real the relationships between the characters felt, I mean, they really, it felt like there was a lot of glue there that I can only imagine their familiarity with each other. And also Josh's direction really, really made happen.
1: I'd love to learn a little bit more about that Ubisoft Women's uh, Writers Project. Uh, I'm
2: happy to plug it.
1: (laughs) Well, tell (laughs) me about it and, and how it led you into writing a screenplay for the company.
2: Um, well, I actually showed up there on a general and um, Margaret Boykin, who was like our wonderful shepherdess through this process, um, she was actually uh, working for somebody else uh, at that time. And uh, two months later, she calls my agent, she has that guy's job. And, <laughs> and she said, uh, listen, we're doing this fellowship, this mission I want to apply. And there was no fellowship it was the first year so i was sort of the first fellow and it was exciting it was non exclusive it was paid um and it they offered me ip and i was like okay paid to pitch with access to ubisoft's catalog sign me (laughs) up um and uh and and they were just like yeah we're really interested in your point of view we're interested in sort of seeing the female point of view filtering through these games and i think you see it in werewolves within in a lot of ways it's a movie about toxic masculinity in, in some in some respects though i don't want to get too into it because i i don't want to give too much away to people who haven't gone to gotten a oh, no. chance to go see it yet but um you know it was really an opportunity to play and they let here's the big thing they didn't pull out like here are women games for women to write. <laughs> yeah, they just said here is our catalog of games for people, and that was really new for me and really exciting. And did you I, yeah. choose
1: the game? I did. Yeah, ah.
2: yeah. I I got and not just
1: because your name is Wolf,
2: and partially because I do <laughs> have an affinity for the creatures. I mean, okay. I'm not gonna lie. I, you know, Wolf does mean Wolf, and german or you know finnish or wherever the wherever the heck my people come from but um but uh but uh it was really that the the idea of doing it in closed space you know that sort of who done it in a in a town and in this the private justice angle of it there's there were a lot of private justice stories i had heard recently in the news and otherwise um and people taking matters into their own hands just,
1: vigilantism yeah
2: vigilant it just seemed like um just exactly where i wanted it to be
1: and i have not played the game i'm not much of a gamer but uh would anyone go to this movie and recognize that this was the game it was based on a game
2: um I don't know. I mean, I think you would recognize some aspects of like uh, social deduction games. So people, yeah. ha- you know, where where people's, people's characters, like their job. So I think you'd see like, you know, if you go into a a, a, a Clouseau, Inspector Clouseau movie, you're going to see these certain archetypes. If you go into Clue, you're going to see these certain archetypes into the thing. You're going to see these certain archetypes or alien or something like that. Um, so I think they would sort of recognize those things from the game, and certainly the scene around the fireplace where the accusations are flying is ripped straight from the game. But that's kind of what the game is. And so, that was also
1: taken from the thing too, you know. Everybody's in the circle, yeah, yeah, the, uh, the blood, yeah, you
2: know, with the blood and the, <laughs> yeah. the hot, the hot wire.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, Josh, did you find yourself uh, watching a lot of werewolf movies uh, when you were prepping?
3: I revisited a few. I, I, actually, um, there are such specific, uh, nods and homages. Um, you know, I, I looked at the lensing from bad moon. I actually think bad moon is one of the oh, most yeah. beautiful werewolf films. Um, it's gorgeous on anamorphic and, you know, Carpenter talks about, Hey, well, you know, if you can't afford anything else, you know, you got a low budget movie shoot anamorphic and I, you know, we went with the, sp- the, the specific, um, sort of uh, aspect ratio with cinematographer, Matt. Wise is it that, that was like, you know, I looked at that homage um, and also Silver Bullet uh, just to revisit for the fun of it, even Monster Squad. I think that was one of those terrifying werewolves I saw as a kid because the actor, the character actor who played the wolf man really played that pain and trauma and terror. And I thought that was just so dreadful and Silver Bullet really felt like what would really happen if you took on this thing um, uh, with your Drunkle, uh, Drunkle. <laughs> <pursuit>. um, <laughs> So yeah, I revisited a few. Um, there was one really beautiful foreign film about a woman, uh, a woman werewolf. I can't remember the name of it. It was, it was oh, I, 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 I watched that too. Beast raw, it had, Beast Raw. So. It had not raw was I like, yeah, raw was one, but there was one like oh, it was gorgeous. I can't remember the name of it, but it was really well done. The the hair growth like that from specifically, I uh. sort of um I took note of the realistic kind of uh effects and the like. But beyond that, you know, um re-watching Clue to look at tableau shooting. We didn't have two cameras the whole shoot. I had to, I had to really um, put my foot down about two cameras for the accusation scene. And wow. as, you as only you shot imagine, with
1: one camera throughout. Wow,
3: ninety percent of the time. So my part of my cell, Mick, you know, was, hey, we're gonna do these Spielbergian tableau shots where the actors right. are gonna fill the screen and where your eye can do the editing. And obviously if you're, you know, Mr. Spielberg, you would swing over over to a reflective surface and see the scene, you know, continue playing on a ticking clock that would thematically have to do with, you know, X, you know, whatever. But we didn't, wouldn't always have the the time to do more than these kind of tempered tableau shots. So, you know, it was it was, hey, I bet we can finish out these three scenes and this wide and then, you know, uh, uh, an insert. Um, and that's often what we did. Um, and it worked out, I think Beautifully, because, you know, you can sort of look in the background on watch number two or, you know, perhaps three and say, oh, my gosh, you know, that character is not in the background. You can implicate this character, that character or the other. And that was that was really fun.
1: Well, it has style and not everybody comes out of the gate shooting a movie that has a personal style to it that that carries throughout. Um, Having done two genre films in very close circumstances, confined spaces does it make you want your next one to be something with a little more geographic reach?
3: I have, yeah, a few people have said, what's the third in your Cornetto trilogy of uh, (laughs) contained thrillers, Mr. Wright? Um, (laughs) And uh, I do have an idea that um, would start that way, but end up being far more grand than conceived. You know, there are films that are so satisfying, even, even the invitation with its small, but big grand kind of ending where you think, holy shit, this thing was way bigger than we thought, but oh yeah. budgetarily bigger and everything else. Yes. I, I have a few ideas, but Misha excites me with her uh, MO. She hasn't mentioned this yet, but wants to make more horror more action um wants to make john wick i i mean like you know so i want to i want to ride her coattails um, (laughs) i want to ride yours so (laughs) i'm excited to see your you know your perspective um on on those types of movies i think that's incredible
1: well, it's a great team. It's funny. You're talking about starting small and going large. It's the opposite of hateful eight, which starts out oh, these giant <laughs> yeah. 70 millimeter you know, and then it goes all interior. It's still 70 <laughs> yeah. millimeter and brilliant. But oh, but those shit. John
2: Ford shots. I mean, yes. it's like it's they're so awesome. Yeah. And I, I just I was like, I, I love that movie. I thought I watched it a lot while I was making uh, write, writing, not making, writing Werewolves yeah. Within. Um, and that's a, that's a movie uh, I could watch every day with Cheerios, you know?
1: <laughs> I could like, wake
2: <laughs> up, get my Cheerios, watch Hateful Eight.
3: Pop in your Walton Goggins, yeah. yeah there I, you <laughs> go.
1: <laughs> so uh, Josh hinted at things that you want to do in the future. Can you give us a, a little better idea of the kind of things you want to reach out and, uh, and go for next?
2: Well, I love horror because it's allegorical, um, and yeah. there's there's like almost no social issue you can't plug into a horror movie. I feel like, it, it, and and comedy adds the sort of sugar coating on that as well. So I feel like you can like get it, away
1: with a lot with comedy. Yeah, and you horror. can
2: you can give a lot you can give a lot of social commentary if you just wrap it in the candy shell of comedy. Um, but I also like horror is just like. I, I don't know, and and maybe Josh feels this way, but when I was doing comedy, I would host a lot. And when you host, you have to control the audience, and it's really a man. You're managing people's emotions, and you have to make them into a crowd when they were just dispersed people who came to drink, um, <laughs> and it takes a really kind of sick fuck to want to <laughs> manipulate people's emotions that way. Yeah. Um and but it's it's like it's in me now to want to control people's experiences and I think scares and laughs um uh, and jumps and stuff and 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 mist it like comes from this sort of same organism um of this like you're gonna feel this then you're gonna feel that then I'm gonna make you feel that and um and You know, it's, it's a nice little world to be in. And it's, it's, I loved writing this. I loved the experience of working with Josh and and seeing the finished product. It was just, it's such a joyful
3: space for a comedy.
1: Josh, would you ever consider doing stand up
3: again? Oh gosh, you know, I I did that vocationally. I, I I really did that because I saw Jim Carrey do Man on the Moon and then watched the real Andy Kaufman um, and thought I, I should saw probably... him
1: perform. I saw him perform a couple of times.
3: Oh my and god, it was, it was
1: astonishing. Yeah,
3: yeah, I that I mean that 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 guy, you know people that broke broke kind of boundaries were were really um exciting to me robin andy I mean whoopi Goldberg that could bring in performance yeah. um i mean stand up is performance but could bring in um that layered kind of character performance that's more the dream for me someday if i you know I don't know, uh move into one-person shows, um, that that could be a thing. I think I um, probably would be in the live adaptation or the stage adaptation of Scare Me, but I certainly want to adapt it someday because it oh. lends itself to that. But um, I, I don't think stand-up proper. That was a really wonderful time as a teenager coming off of my absolute obsession of Robin and Leguizamo and you know all the comic relief series and the like, and of course, everything Andy Kaufman.
1: Now, Mishnah, you've done One Woman Show. Um, I have, yeah. And you've done stand-up. Would you go back to stand-up performing?
2: I don't know. Uh, Right now, I would say, like, I used to do a show that started at midnight. Like, I can't stay up that late anymore. Like It's like being a vampire. There is a vampirical aspect to it, which is like, I I also, I am not the greatest performer. That's the one thing, like, I feel like part of growing up is accepting your limitations. And I love putting my words in other people's mouths, but I don't think I'm the one to deliver them. I'm just not the best person for the job. And, and, you know, I think I have a lot of words to put in a lot of mouths, but I... (laughs) I don't Uh, think anyone needs to see them come out of mine.
3: I feel that way from a filmmaker standpoint, too. It's like, you know, um, Mark Duplass talks about this with Creep. He's like, you know, I can probably do some interesting stuff. I could probably play this sort of creepy part in Creep, interestingly. But I'm excited about putting people in front of the camera and treating them like a human being. But people that wouldn't have had the opportunity to play X, Y and Z archetype or part. Um, that's really, really exciting to me. And especially, you know, you're mentioning Mick and the horror genre. It's true. You don't need, um, you know, uh, uh, some major movie star as Misha, you said, you don't need a Tom Cruise to kind of get it going. Um, you know, I didn't know who Jess Roche was before happy death day. And now I'm like, holy mackerel. I think she's wonderful. And that the list can got Daniel Kaluuya. Um, it goes on and on. Um, so that's what I'm super excited about. I think in another world, I'd be a casting director and could find, um, those, you know, scout for wonderful people to say, holy crap, you know, who's the next Matt Frewer or, or you know, Daniel or, um, uh, on and on and on Kira Allen, you know, the people that just exciting performers at every turn.
1: Great. Well, I can't wait to see what both of you do next together and independently. And I just want to thank you for giving us your insights on the show.
2: Thanks so much
3: Pocket for having me. Thank Mick. you so much. Much love. Worship. <laughs> worship. Big
1: same, worship. Same back. Thank you so much. Take care. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris on the Dread Podcast Network. Download new episodes every Wednesday and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app.